0: Hello and welcome to Brandtuned, Successful Brand, Successful Business, the show for entrepreneurs and brand creators, where we discuss personal and business branding to give you ideas and inspiration for your own brand. I'm Shireen Smith, lawyer, entrepreneur, author, and advocate for developing purpose-based brands to change the world. David B. Horn qualified as a chartered accountant with Pricewaterhouse in 1987 and moved into in-house finance roles for blue-chip companies, including a 10-year stint as CFO with some very fast-growing companies when he raised over £100 million and bought or sold more than 20 businesses. This experience resulted in his add-then-multiply methodology for helping founders to scale massively by raising funds and investing in their businesses. He's put it all into a book of that name, which recently won a Business Book Award in its category. So welcome, David, to the Brandtuned podcast.
1: Thank you, Shereen. Nice to be here.
0: What does the B in your name stand for as a matter of interest? Uh,
1: Bowen. It was my father's mother's maiden name.
0: Ah, right. And are you actually more difficult to find on Google as David Horn without the B?
1: There are several other David Horns that are also on Google. One of them is the chief executive of, um, I think it's now LNER, used to be Virgin Railways. Um, one of them, actually, the interesting thing came when I was, um, doing my research before my book went on to Amazon and there is another David Horn on Amazon, um, who publishes, uh, quite prolifically publishes game.
0: (laughs) Oh, what a nuisance for you.
1: So I thought, I thought I'll, I'll just throw the B in there to have something different. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's a good idea. You want to stand out, obviously, when people put your name in. So, David, what is your methodology for supporting businesses to scale and what type of business is it most suited to?
1: So, methodology is called FACE, which stands for Fund, Acquire, Consolidate and Exit. So basically fund is raising money, acquire is buying other companies, consolidate is putting them together and exit is ultimately selling your business so that you can go on and do whatever the next stage of your life um, holds for you. Um, and in terms of who is it relevant for, I mean, really it's it's relevant for most uh, established SMEs. It's probably less relevant for startups and things. So really my kind of my kind of target client um, it doesn't depend on 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 any particular industry, um, but target client would be a fairly established business with at least two million pounds in turnover, so that they've got sufficient size and scale to have a, a reasonable valuation, so that when they raise money, you know they don't end up being diluted down too much, um, but but that enables them to, to to raise enough that they can go out and make some attractive acquisitions and you know kind of. I guess in layman's terms, the way I, the way I often position this is, you know, you, you could own, you could own a hundred percent of your business, which is like owning a hundred percent of a pie that's mm-hmm. worth a couple of million. Um, or you could raise capital and be diluted down and own 50% of a business, but because of the scale up that you've done, it's now worth 20, 20 million. So mm-hmm. in you've, you've got the option of owning a hundred percent of 2 million or 50% of 20 million. Um, And, you know, it's a choice. Some people want to maintain 100% and that's absolutely fine. Um, But for those who are not totally tied to the idea that they have to have complete control, it's a great way to to scale up a business quickly. Um, And I mean, I I have a case study in the book of um, an entrepreneur that I worked with for three years. When I joined his business, uh, turnover was 1.1 million. Profits were about 400 grand. Three years later, we had made seven acquisitions. Turnover was 28 million and profits were four and a half million. We were operating in three different countries. So that's 25x growth in revenue in three years. You can't do that with organic growth.
0: Wow, that is something. So, how do you actually help them? Are you coaching them or do you work in their businesses? How does it work?
1: a combination of the two really um so i'm i'm in the process of uh, i was until covid-19 hit in the process of um uh developing a mastermind program that i was going to run um to to open this up to a, a wider range of people uh and that would be a sort of a, a a coaching and a and a training um thing but in addition to that i i do work directly with the founders so in the last 12 months i've worked on two exits Um, both of which have been pulled because of COVID. Um, And I'm currently working on a substantial fundraising for a client in Switzerland, which we're still working on and we're still hopeful that we'll be able to get it away. But uh, it's an interesting time. So we'll see where it goes.
0: Right. So very interesting. So do you think it's going to become more difficult to raise funds during a recession?
1: Yes and no. Um, I Yes, it's going to be more difficult because valuations are going to be under pressure, um, mm-hmm. you know, because it's it's always tricky to assess the valuation of a privately held business. But if you're in an industry that has some publicly traded comparable businesses, you can use that as a benchmark for, you know, looking at what's an appropriate earnings multiple that you could use on the business or or any other multiple that you might choose to use um, and on the basis that, you know, there's a publicly traded company doing something similar, then you can make the argument that that's a fair valuation. Um, And I mean, stock markets around the world have, have, you know, they've fallen off 20, 30 percent. So valuations are going to come under pressure. There's no question. Um, But actually raising capital. um, I mean, the investors still have the money. They have it in their books. They have it on their balance sheets. They some of them have specifically said they're going to wait until COVID-19 is over or at least until the lockdown is over before they make any uh, investments. But I'm aware of a number of, of of investors that are still actively looking at deals. So, you know, it's 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 going to be a little harder. It'll be a little bit longer. Valuations won't be as high, but the money's still out there and, and for the right business, it can be raised.
0: Okay, I, I was interested that you think that your mastermind wouldn't be viable anymore. What so what impact will the coronavirus epidemic have on the vision that you have for your business?
1: Um that's a good question. I guess in my head I had the mastermind being a an in-person program. Um could it run online? I I I mean we're we're finding out we're finding out that a lot <laughs> of things can run online. Um, I still like the idea of people coming together and being together physically. And for anyone who's been through a really successful mastermind program, it's quite an intense, um, personal experience. And I mean, I'm not saying that it's now not going to happen because of COVID-19, but I'm, I, I think it's, it I think it'll be delayed. Um, but yeah, who knows, maybe I should put some feelers out and see if it, people are interested in starting something in a, on an online basis and take it from there. I, I, I still would like it to be an in-person event at some point, because I, yes. I, I feel that you get more, you, you know, you can you can do lots and you can communicate lots online, but you get more from being face-to-face in the same room with people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But a combination of the two might work quite well.
1: A hundred percent. And in fact, the the original plan had been to run a two day event every other month and to do a series of Zoom calls in the month that we weren't meeting. Right. So maybe I just need to rethink it and, and maybe the first few meetings will just be done on Zoom. There'll be more prepar- preparatory stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a great time at the moment for people to rethink their vision, mission, values and, you know, prepare for the change in the economy which will happen eventually i guess mid 2021
1: hopefully <laughs>
0: <laughs> hopefully yes so david how did you come up with the name add then multiply
1: um so i first launched my um my consulting business and it was originally called bowen business consultants so your your question about the b in my middle name uh, was 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 relevant there um and uh then i just when i started thinking about focusing more on on what i do in terms of the expansion and growth and and advising um and I, I have a very good friend who is a uh branding expert um he used to do a lot of work with some some of the big uh global branding agencies and 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 works uh for himself now and <clears throat> i invited him to lunch and and we were just chatting and i was saying look i'm thinking of doing something different with the brand and 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 the name of the company. And, and you know, this is where I'm looking at taking the business. Can, can we explore options? And, and he came back to me with a whole bunch of different ideas. And one of them was actually, uh, interestingly, he said, he said, drop the business consultants and call the, just call the company Bowen. And then I'd had an old logo that had that was an, an eight-pointed star that was literally a plus sign and a multiplication sign one on top of the other, mm-hmm. um, and he he said he really liked that, but but he said why don't we go with Bowen and then the sublight sub uh, strap line add then multiply, and I just looked at it and I thought add then multiply that's it that's that's the one and I changed the name of the company um, and we we've been trading as add then multiply ever since.
0: Yeah, it really explains what you're all about, doesn't it? It does. The the way you work, yes. It
1: does, much more than Bowen Business Consultants did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So did you do any further work with him on your brand?
1: Um, He designed the cover of my book, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, whenever I'm working with clients that need any branding advice, I bring him in.
0: Right, so, have you actually formally gone through a process to develop your own brand strategy, or vision, mission, values, and so on? Or um,
1: yes, but it's not documented, and I probably should take some time while while, while we're on this uh, on this lockdown to actually document it. Yes, we've been through the process; um, we've got a written brand guidelines. Um, but yeah, the vision, mission, values, and, and and you know, it's interesting in in my book. One of the one of the things that I talk to clients about. Uh, to people about as, as one of the preparatory steps is to make sure you've got real clarity over your vision and, vision and culture and values. So I guess it would, it would help if I did. Uh, you know, it's one of those, uh, the cobbler's children kind of examples.
0: <laughs> yeah. We'll take a short break at this point, as I'd like to mention the brand Brandtuned series of webinars which support founders to think through their brand taking IP into account at the right time which is before you make firm decisions about what to create. Just visit brandtune.com and the webinars are referenced right there on the home page. Okay back to the podcast now. So I'm just trying to look up your your logo, because I, I just wrote an article today about visual hammers. Yeah, so you've got quite a good good one. That could be a visual hammer. You've got the plus and the multiply with a star in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really excellent because it conveys exactly what your name is. I, I really like your brand. Thank you. When you merge two cultures, like when you sell, acquire a business i imagine yep. it must be quite difficult to blend two cultures which have totally different you know purposes visions missions and so on to bring them together Definitely. can you give us an insight into the challenges and how you dealt with a particular case
1: sure um gosh i could give you a few and 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 it's interesting this is this is the consolidate stage of my of my face methodology and as i say in the book this is the area where get this right and you can make a real success of the, of the deal, get it wrong. And this is where the deal can go horribly wrong. Um, my first adult experience of MA um, was early in my career after I'd left Waterhouse. my, my, um, my biggest client was a company called NCR, uh, and they made me a very attractive offer to join them. So I took it. And about two years into that NCR was, um, subject of a hostile takeover bid from AT&T, the U.S. telecoms Mm -hmm. business. And in the 90s, it was identified as one of the worst ever value-destroying M&A transactions um, uh, until we had the excesses of the dot-com boom. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, the, the change in culture is huge. I, I was, you know, I was a, I was a, a, a middle level manager in, in, a, in a, you know, a huge company at the time. So I wasn't really involved in the detail, but when I fast forward to, um, to my roles in, in, in PLC days, um, I'll, I'll tell you about, uh, my second PLC, mm-hmm. um, which was a, a, a company that, um. Did online auctions and um, we got wind that our largest global competitor was up for sale and so we went out and raised 28 million and bought them and did a global integration we were in 16 countries they were in about a dozen and there wasn't that much overlap um, so we ended up being in 23 countries there were three countries the uk the usa and germany where there was a significant overlap and we ripped out a lot of costs and, and did a huge um, you know, restructuring. Um, and it's really a case of you need to sit down and really plan out in detail what are the steps you're going to take. So one of the commitments we had when we did the fundraising was that we were going to rip 5 million pounds of cost out of the combined entity. Um, and as the CFO of that group, it was my job to track those savings. So we had to sit down and go through with all of the regional heads and you know, when you're ripping out that kind of money, it's it's mainly people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had a great big spreadsheet of, you know, all of the different people that we had said we were going to take out and what it was costing and all that. Um, and, you know, you you deal with that. And then when you've got in the countries where we had the big overlaps, not only did we have the challenge of ripping out a lot of costs, but we also had the challenge of 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 trying to put the cultures together yeah there were some differences we we worked hard to make sure that on the top executive team there were members of both companies um so i mean in 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 the top exec group there were what eight people and i think five of them were from the acquiring company and and three of them were from the acquired company Mm -hmm. um and that you know that that Gave us an opportunity because it meant that the people in the acquired company felt that they had a representation. Um, On the other hand, you know, we had some challenges with with one or two of those people who were very resistant to some of the change that we were looking at doing. Um, I'll I'll, I'll use another example from my first PLC, which was a, a digital media and publishing business. And we actually had a very clearly set out strategy. We would not keep former owners in the business. So if we if we bought a, if we bought the business from a former owner who had whatever role in the company, um, their role ended at the at the completion of the deal. We would we would ask them to stick around for a handover period. Um, and We we used we used to we used to put them on something called the senior advisory board. Um, but the senior advisory board had no mandate and never met officially. But it, it was a way to it was a way to let the people understand. You know that that the, get to, for them to walk away and feel that they you know they still had some value and stuff and that was important. But therefore, because it was wholly under our management, we were able to make some of the cultural changes that we wanted to um, to in order to you know to drive the business forward and 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 really to look at what are the changes that we want to make, what are the what are the investments that we want to make to 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 develop and grow the business. Um, at the end of the day, Shireen. It's all about people. And, uh, you know, you, 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 you need to understand the, the different motivations that people have and you need to understand how to get people to, you know, get on board with with new initiatives. And sometimes you have to make some tough decisions. And, you know, there are sometimes people who uh, who are casualties in the process because they wouldn't or couldn't adapt to whatever the new environment was.
0: Do you actually consider whether the cultures can be blended together before you buy as a company?
1: Oh, that's a good one. We usually look at how complementary the businesses are. Um, I mean, uh, in my first PLC, we we had a political division that was very well-established. It, it was a brand that had been around for nearly 200 years, Uh, And then we bought the new kid on the block in the industry, which was only about 10 years old, but was a really fast-driving, hard-charging, sales-driven organization, culturally very, very different. And what was really interesting was that that new organization, um, they came up against us as the competition all the time because we were the established name. And we actually reached a decision together with the leaders of, of that business that we would rebrand and they would drop their names and adopt our adopt ours because it had much greater brand value in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But we also uh, allowed them to, we, we we softened down some of their hard charging sales uh, activities, but we came that that political division became a much more sales driven organization than it had been before. So we actually took aspects of both cultures mm-hmm. and I think, you know, as with anything when you're putting bits and pieces together, it's good that you can find good things from both.
0: yeah, it is. Do you ever go through a rebranding exercise in order to bring the two businesses together more and unify them
1: yes, so we we did that with the political division in that company, so we 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 dropped so so um where they had publications that had brand recognition, we left the names of those publications intact. Mm-hmm but we changed the, so when, when their people rang up, um, uh, so, so our, our established brand was called Dodds, Parla- was was called Dodds, um, and theirs was called, um, Parliamentary Communications, and they were more than happy to just drop Parliamentary Communications for, I think there was a transition period of six months where we called them Dodds Parliamentary Communications, and then after six months, they were very happy to just drop the Parliamentary Communications and use Dodds because it was, such a well-recognized brand Mm.
0: I imagine it must just be so difficult because even for a company to make sure that all the different divisions make decisions on brand takes quite a lot of training and communicating and then when you lose knowledge because people leave you have to keep that alive somehow
1: I mean I mean keeping people on board is one of the key things um and, and again, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the auction business. Um, so there, the, 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 the world headquarters of the company that we bought was in L.A. Um, and our North American headquarters were in Baltimore on the East Coast. And um, so all of their group finance people uh, were based out of L.A. And, and um, we knew from the due diligence that, that their finances needed a, a significant overhaul. Um, but equally, I was very concerned that I didn't want to just fire everybody in LA and try and pick up and 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 go. And, and and I was absolutely thrilled when I managed to convince one of their mid-level managers in their finance team to relocate to Baltimore. So we actually had some institutional knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and I, I go into that in more detail in the book. There's actually a little side panel on institutional knowledge because it's a it's a really important thing to remember when you're when you're running a business, and it's it's just. You know, the things that people understand and know instinctively from day to day and the funny little anomalies that happened a year ago that you know nobody remembers. Um and I've I, I had that earlier in my career, um, when I was working in a, a very acquisitive PR agency group and we got taken over and merged into a much, much larger uh business and um my role was made redundant because they already had a a, a European CFO. And they were bigger and and they made the acquisition and that you know that's kind of life Mm. Um, but it was interesting because they made both me and my boss in the uk redundant and we had done seven acquisitions in two years and it was about six or seven months before i got the first phone call um, to come back because nobody understood the details on the deals and there were disputes and then it came to year end and the auditors were asking questions and nobody knew the answers and I ended up doing rather a lot of consulting work for them um, and you know and I've seen that happen so many times so so doing something to protect institutional knowledge and 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 having representation of both sides of the business um, involved in the process is really really important
0: great so how important is i p and brand to the value of the businesses that you've acquired?
1: Oh it's key i mean it, in in the broader sense of IP and brand, not just the name and the logo, mm-hmm. but the whole way of doing business, the whole ethos, what the brand stands for. Um, and again, if I take the example of the political publishing one, you know, here was here was a a a, 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 a new um, aggressive startup business doing quite well. All of a sudden, they had the opportunity to uh carry on doing what they were doing but um instead of the the sort of the Ford XR4 brand they now had the Rolls-Royce brand so so from that perspective it was a that was a great move um and and you know those kinds of things are really beneficial i think as well again you know from the publishing side um the protection of ip is absolutely critical because you know we we were we were, um, you know, getting, we were buying rights, you know, Mm I mean, there weren't, you know, there weren't really physical assets that we were buying, we were buying publishing rights and the rights to, to, you know, the ownership of titles, whether it was books or magazines or websites or events and all of that. So the IP was absolutely critical.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes I come across people who say that they're not really bothered by their name because they think they're going to be acquired and whoever acquires them won't, want to use the same name but it's still the value of the business accumulates around the name and so you know the acquirer can change the name but they'll just redirect any traffic to that website it doesn't matter that they're going to change the name you still need to be able to be distinctive before you get acquired
1: absolutely and and you know not worrying about your name on the basis that you might get acquired well what if you don't get acquired and you end up with yeah. a rubbish name you
0: know <laughs> yes so have you actually ever increased or reduced the amount you were paying for a business based on what you discovered during due diligence
1: yes absolutely um the uh, the auction business um we so the deal was valued at uh 28 million US. And um, the initial purchase price was 31 million US. Um, And we found a number of things in due diligence that led to a a $3 million purchase price adjustment.
0: Can you reveal any particular deficiency that
1: uh yeah so they had um they had told us that certain types of things were no longer happening and we discovered in due diligence that those things were happening and we held a re- an, an escrow reserve on uh the uh, the portion of the of the purchase that was relevant to that particular transaction so um it was an auction business and normally in the auction business you you buy and sell um, on commission. So, so you act as, as effectively as the agent. Uh, so you have a buyer and you have a seller and you act as the party who's in between. But every now and then, um, some auction houses do what's called principal business where they actually buy the ownership of the assets from whoever was selling them, carry that risk on their own book and then sell them. Um, and this particular company had, had a couple of uh, principal transactions that had gone bad. And we discovered that during the due diligence. And we had been assured during the negotiation process that they didn't have any material, uh, principal transactions. And we discovered two of them, um, and, uh, put 3 million that were valued at $3 million. And we put $3 million into a, into an escrow account. And, um, uh, sure enough, those assets didn't sell. And we, we took the money back out of escrow. And, and it was effectively a purchase price adjustment. That's interesting. It was a very, very <laughs> difficult negotiation. But but we did do it.
0: Interesting. So which brand in your industry, um, David, do you particularly admire? And why? I, which industry would you categorize as yours? actually?
1: Oh, which industry <laughs> do I categorize as mine? You know, Early on in my career, I read a wonderful book called "Become a Category of One," um, <laughs> and and I I like to think that I am in some ways. I mean, there, well,
0: you are very distinctive in what you do.
1: There are, you know, there are other corporate finance houses, there are other uh, boutique consultancy firms. Um, I mean, if I wanted to pick a name that most people are going to recognise, I'd pick PwC, partly because I'm an alumnus of of the firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have very good contacts there. Um, in fact, I've done a number of, 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 uh, things with PwC where, you know, we've been involved in, in, in partnering together. Um, I met a, a, a recently appointed partner, um, a few months ago and was talking with her about, uh, you know, what I do and, and what areas I'm in. And, and and she said, well, you know, one thing that might be really interesting is, you know, you, you bring clients alone, you start with the clients when they're worth, let's say, 2 million, and then they get up to worth 25, 30, 50 million. And then they're going to need a broader range of services that you can't offer, you know, maybe you can just funnel them into us. And, and um, you know, I'd be delighted to to be able to say to my clients, well, you know, work with me and, and grow with me, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get you into it, to becoming a PwC client. So, yeah, I'll say PwC mm-hmm. is a brand that I admire.
0: Well, that's lovely that you qualified there and they're a brand that you admire. Yeah. So thank you very much, David, for this interview. We'll be sure to add mention of your book in the show notes. And... Thank you. Great. So thank you. Bye-bye. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brandtuned, where we aim to answer the question, what does it take to create a successful business and brand? I'd love it if you would take a moment to give me a review. If you have any questions, send me a message. You can find me on LinkedIn or most other social media platforms or on my personal website at shereensmith.com.